Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today for our last technology report of the year are Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who served as the Director of Indo-Pacific Command's Operations, who is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies uh, and the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0 Project, and Chris Cleary, who until a couple of weeks ago was the United States Navy's Principal Cyber Advisor. Uh, They're joining us Uh, This week is part of our year in review of 2023, uh, today to look at the uh, important cyber stories of the year and how they're going to shape 2024. Chris uh, and Mark, welcome back. And Chris, congratulations on uh, both uh, a job well done, BZ, uh, and uh, your Bravo Zulu, as well as your uh, retirement. And and Mark, thanks for just being you. Thanks, Vago. I'm really uh, happy to be here. Hey, thank you, Vago. Great to be here. Great to be here with Chris. Uh, indeed, a, a pleasure having you both, uh, both of you gentlemen, uh, on, and and uh, we appreciate very much, Chris. Thanks very much for being so generous with your time while you were in government, uh, and so uh, hopefully we'll be able to spend a little bit more time together uh, in whatever your your next gig is. Um, I want to just uh, uh, put in a quick word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Chris, um, every year in cyber seems like a lifetime. <laughs> it's like sort of a dog year, uh, given the the scale and pace of events. Uh, many of the themes are very similar, whether it's espionage campaigns by the uh, Chinese or Russian or North Korean or ransomware. Uh, although there are some stories that you know are a little bit different, right? Like the U.S. government going after a software maker uh, for ignoring uh, the threat and then causing vulnerabilities across uh, government in case of uh, solar winds, uh, and maybe. We can discuss that later. From your standpoint, what were the most important cyber stories of 2023 and what they tell us about what we should be expecting next year? Yeah. Wow. Vaga, we could really talk about that all day. And it was funny as we were getting ready for this call, it's how all these cyber activities sort of blend into each other. You know, whether it was this year or last year, I think it's the things that have happened collectively over the last couple of years that have really brought attention to this problem and the things we need to do with inside the, the Department of Defense, the larger U.S. federal government to get after them. Um, the ones, obviously, as the principal cyber advisor for the Department of the Navy, you know, I was looking at the things that more uh, affected the Department of Defense and the way that we were positioning uh, our capabilities to be able to respond in, you know, current and in future activity. Uh, and the things that mostly kept me up at night, um, one were the very, what was the very obvious ones, particularly the Chinese uh, activity with inside of our critical infrastructure. I know Mark is going to talk about this one, because I'm sure it kept him up as well. Uh, but it was the it was the the sort of the audacity of the adversary looking at targets that we had awareness of that don't necessarily have any intrinsic intelligence value to them. You know, if you're on, if you're on some defense critical infrastructure piece of technology, there's nothing preventing you going to Siemens Electronic or or any of these manufacturers of this equipment and just buying it off the shelf uh, and bringing it in and creating your own infrastructure. So there's really no nothing to be gained. Uh, other than positioning yourself for future uh, activity uh, to degrade my ability to do things I have to do in the defense um, 
critical infrastructure space. And the other story that was probably not as not as uh, widely distributed, it, it, it had popped up and down over times. Um, and it was really sort of the, the Department of Defense's struggle with fully baking its its cyber practices within the Department of Defense. And this goes everything from uh, how we're going to man train and equip the, the mission force, how the services present capabilities back to the joint force operators, the joint force commanders, um, as well as how we begin to move resources around the board uh, to do the things that we haven't traditionally considered uh, key or primary things we need to defend, like defense critical infrastructure. So you're going to hear that theme a lot uh, from me moving forward. But um, yeah, it was an interesting year. It's always interesting to see how all this plays out at the Department of Defense level. And uh, yeah, well, I'm happy to expand on any of that. And uh, I'm going to come uh, back to you in a little bit to sort of get a progress, uh, right? I mean, to get a report card a little bit on uh, the wheel moving faster, given that every conversation we've had over the course of many years was about how we get that wheel uh, to actually steadily move uh, faster. Mark, uh, right, um, you've been looking at this problem, obviously, for a long period of of, of, of time. What, what are the stories uh, that jumped out at you, whether they were the big stories or actually the smaller stories? that people actually didn't pay attention to that may have had a disproportionately large impact. Hey, thank you, Vago. And, and I attach myself to everything that, uh, that Chris said. I, what, what, I, what I'll say, there's three stories I was tracking, two big ones, and like you said, one kind of quiet one. The, the two big ones are ones where the threat has really brought home the challenge and the vulnerability to the United States. The first is Volk Typhoon, uh, what, um, what uh, Chris Clary was talking to there, the idea that, the, you know, that we're now saying out loud what a lot of us understood quietly which is that China and to some degree other adversaries have put a lot of malware in our national critical infrastructure. And, and why this really matters is military mobility. Our ability to get equipment, supplies, resources from U.S. Uh, bases to our forward deployed forces requires U.S. and our partner countries, ports, aviation and rail systems, highway systems to be secure so that the the it's not enough that you're secure on the military base. You have to be secure as you leave the military base. And Volt Typhoon revealed um, that the the uh, Chinese have been putting malware in both our four deployed sites. Uh, I think there's reasonable expectation that our allies like Japan and Taiwan and Philippines have the same issues, but also in continental U.S. in these systems, um, and we will not have good military mobility. So. The, the adversary has has put down a big chip there, and it means we have to make a lot of investments in these systems. Right. The other part the adversary has done is ransomware, criminal activity. This criminal activity continues to bedevil, you know, small, medium-sized businesses, utilities, state and local governments. Um, it's going up, you know, it, after a small blip in February of 2022 where it decreased because of uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it is it has come back with a vengeance uh, ransomware and ransomware. You know, there's a slight silver lining to it, which is that more and more of these utilities, state, and local governments, uh, medium sized businesses are having to make investments in cybersecurity, not because they listen to the, the national security imperative, but because it's their bottom line uh, of their business uh, model. So ransomware, those are the two big ones. If I can give you one small one, it's mm -hmm. a very bad decision by the GOP rules uh, committee to narrowly define what could go in the National Defense Authorization Act. And that's because historically the House of, you know, markup and floor amendments were how we got a lot of the important national security issues that weren't 
a majority Department of Defense. In other words, national security issues that were anchored in the Department of Homeland Security or transportation or energy would get into the NDAA through through that mechanism. House Rules Committee, you know, um, I think really led by Chip Roy in this decision making, um, hurt national security significantly because uh, while they're trying to say, well, they can say they're trying to be purer than pure, the reality is there is not another vehicle for many of these non-defense national security issues to be um, smoothly put through Congress. As a result, this NDAA is much more an NDAA about the Department of Defense than it is about the rest of the government and national security. Uh, Chris, uh, you know, we've talked about Chinese cyber activities for a long time. I mean, I was doing interviews and concerns about malware, Chinese malware, a decade or more ago, right? Whether it was an advanced persistent threat uh, in any of our servers and capabilities. I mean, they were resident, uh, you know, in uh, you know joint staff computers at the State Department and, and, and elsewhere. Um, we have a lot of evidence that despite the progress we're making, we're still behind, right? I mean, it seems like a lifetime ago, but the FBI spearheaded a global campaign to clear some 700,000 computers worldwide uh, of uh, uh, the uh, Quackbot um, malware. Um, walk the audience through the nature of Chinese cyber activities, right? Uh, and the progress we're making toward it, because each one of these are problems we have known. They may have become more public, but there were problems nonetheless that folks like you have been dealing, you know, inside dealing, you know, been dealing with inside government for a long time. Yeah, you know, there's a philosophical sort of sort of question in there a little bit, and I think it gets into just generic strategies of how uh, nation states want to deal with each other. Um, one of my favorite books is Moneyball, uh, you know, and it talks about this idea of, you know, there's a really good line in the beginning of it when, you know, the, the Jonah Hill character says it's not about buying players, it's about buying wins. Um, and I think the U.S. government has always looked at playing the game kind of similar to where the Yankees did it with buying players because we can afford them. And those are called Columbia class submarine, Virginia class, you know, Columbia class sub Virginia class Ford class aircraft carrier, the joint strike fighter. Um, we are not limited by the kinds of capabilities that we can go off and acquire uh, through our defense industrial base. And we lead the world in these kind of things. I think when the Chinese saw their inability to keep up with us, let's say with a blue water Navy, they pivoted and they said, what are the things we need to do that cost less that can that can keep our adversaries at bay. They very aggressively went after hypersonics, you know, long range hypersonics to engage our ships uh, before we can get within, you know, say carrier aviation range of targets. And they also very aggressively adopted non kinetic cyber warfare um, as a way to degrade or impede or dissuade or whatever word you want to put in there. Make us worried about our ability to be able to come to the fight prepared. Uh, and do the things that we need to do. When we see the adversary pivoting from not only developing low-cost weapons to engage, you know, war fighting capability, i.e. ships, but getting even beyond that, getting into the things that Mark was referring to. And again, with, he talks about it. I love the way Mark says it, military mobility. There is nothing the Department of Defense does that is not underpinned in some way, shape, or form by the right. defense industrial infrastructure of the United States. So for the Chinese to sort of aggressively begin to look at things that we wouldn't necessarily consider military targets or legitimate military targets, for them to professionalize a workforce to build cyber capabilities, to sort of brazenly being seen, kind of caught with their hand in the cookie jar doing some of these things, 
that, uh, you know, even when we look at the national, the, the norms, you know, the cyber norms that have been suggested at the, you know, by international community. Critical infrastructure is one of those things that we've sort of come to the agreement is thou we shall not touch. There's no, again, there's no right. intrinsic intelligence value there. Again, once again, those are the things that keep me up at night. It's not just that the Chinese are doing this, but they also have a unique ability of doing things at scale, right? Whether it's electronic warfare, whether it's cyber, whether it's weapons production, um, you know, we we have a tendency of being of boutiquing it, whereas they they have a, a, a tendency of of industrializing it. That's a really really good point, um, and this gets back into the other things that you know, as the principal cyber advisor was doing, is just ensuring that we're building these other forces appropriately alongside the things we do kinetically, and arguably, you know. Although the, the forces that we do have are very, very sophisticated, and I would put any individual U.S. cyber operator up against any individual uh, cyber operator for any other country. And, I, you know, I think, you know, nine times out of 10, we come out on top. But when you put that individual against 10 or 100x, what the adversary has begun to professionalize around, that is what scares me. Mark, uh, you know, you've been also coping with this, whether you were at Indopaycom uh, doing operations or in all of your guises, whether up in the Senate or as uh, the Cyber Solarium uh, uh, director, both one and, and two. Um, how are we doing against this threat? Like, how do you gauge the progress we made, especially in 2023 to get at But or let me put it two part. How did the threat get worse in 2023, or is it just the the uh, revelation of that threat or the popularization of the threat? And what happened meaningfully in 2023 to improve capabilities? And Chris, I'm going to come back to you. You know, not not just against right the Chinese side of this, but the Russian side of it, the North Korean side of it, the Iranian side of it, the Cuban side of it. Right? I mean, everybody is is pretty active in this space, and more people are active than we we we, we sometimes want to admit. If you, if you break it down into how are we doing better in our denial capabilities, our ability to prevent an adversary from damage, you know, damage our critical infrastructure, our resilience and our ability to, you know, which is our ability to rapidly, you know, respond to and recover from an attack. So you have that <clears throat> denial, uh, that part, that resilience part. And then finally, you have like a cost imposition, our ability to impose uh, costs on adversary. And all those areas we have improved. But you kind of averted to it there. Our adversary is also improving. And, and Chris uh, talked about this as well. You know, particularly the Chinese are growing rapidly. So the question is, are we doing better if relative to the year before? Yes, much better. Relative to the adversary's threat that they impose on us, whether it's a nation state or criminal? No, not so much. And in fact, in some areas, we're, we're probably slipping. But there are some things that ought to be called out. One, I think the Department of Justice uh, un under Lisa Monaco is much more aggressive in handling these things. They've picked up their game. They're more agile. I think they're doing a better job working with the National Security Agency and the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. So I think those things are starting to see a better integration of the U.S. Uh, um, uh, national security, cybersecurity nexus. And, and you're starting to, to see, and I think, you know, the, the uh, National Security Counselor, Ann Newberger, and the National Cyber Director, the, the creation of that, uh, you know, contribute to that significantly. So we are getting better. I'm just afraid that the adversary is getting better at a slightly higher rate. So uh, overall, you know, we've still got more catch up to do. Uh, and uh, and, I, and I think and I, I think that's driven by the adversary. One other thing I will say is we are seeing more investment in cybersecurity by medium sized businesses, utilities, small local governments. And again, 
I think that's a silver lining to the ransomware scourge. Um, and so, uh, you know, we are improving, but we're only improving because the adversary is making life really hard for us. Chris, uh, you, uh, you know, several many years ago when we were talk would express some frustration uh, that uh, the department and even the Department of the Navy was not moving as aggressively and was not putting that investment right would rather have one more ship than actually invest what was necessary to defend the whole fleet. How have you seen that change and how did you know, did do you feel like you made any progress in 2023, you know, as, as you end the year having, you know, just just retired? I mean, has it was 2023 a, a year of appreciable needle moving from your standpoint? So last year, about a year, a year and change ago, when we released the cyberspace superiority vision, we broke it down into that secure survive strike buckets. And I know we've talked about this in the past. I think the secure bucket, which is I'd like to refer to kind of your enterprise IT world, your risk management framework, identity management, those types of compliance, the types of things that live in that bucket. I think the Navy has really moved the needle. Now, I can't take a lot of credit for this as the PCA. Most of these efforts happened under the CIO initiative. And this goes all the way back to Aaron Weiss when he came into the department. Uh, we used um, the COVID uh, crisis as an opportunity to roll some of this stuff out, particularly around the things that you've talked about before, flank speed as an example. Um, the Navy very, very aggressively rolled out uh, Microsoft Defender under the flank speed initiative to over 750,000 endpoints just within the Department of the Navy alone. There we have made tremendous progress. When you move over to the other two buckets, you know, secure survive really talked about the OT infrastructure, weapon systems, defense critical infrastructure. And then strike was really this idea of the offensive cyber, how are particularly like mission force topics. Those two buckets, we've moved the needle a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked to. Um, in the OT space, the Department of Defense for the last two years has really begun to focus on this. Now, Moving resources priority, getting capabilities actually rolled out into the field has not happened at the pace, but these things are not easy. But what I can say is at the, you know, the E-ring level, uh, the senior leaders are now focused on the defense of our critical infrastructure at it, as it supports, and I'll use Mark's word, military mobility and all the things that happened there. This is all the services are using the same language. I'll throw a program out, Mosaics is one that uh, you've heard me talk about in the past. It is making progress. And just, just give the audience a brief uh, a primer on what that is, because some might not be familiar with it. Yeah. Mosaics is an acronym that stands for More Situation Awareness of Industrial Control Systems. Uh, right. This was a, 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 a joint capability technology demonstration that goes all the way back to 2020 um, to get after uh, the resiliency and survivability of, of, of OT devices, principally associated with uh, defense critical infrastructure. Um, and again, it's been making progress. It's getting resourced. You're going to see it begin to roll out uh, in 2024 and very aggressively in 25. As you move over to the warfighting side, well, these are all the, the stories that we've talked about in the in the past. You know, mission force readiness, U.S. Cybercom's enhanced budget control, uh, the joint cyber warfighting architecture, Cybercom standing up a PEO to do these things. All these things are happening. Um, but to, to Mark's point, are they happening at the pace and at the scale they need to for us to be ready to present non-kinetic capability to the Joint Force Commander when required? Uh, I'd still there's still a question mark on some of those things. And again, it gets back into uh, a conversation I had with the secretary as I was leaving where I encouraged two things. One is 
making cyber much more of a core competency for the department. I think all the services are struggling with this with a little bit. How does this become a core mission space, not just something we do, but something that we aggressively professionalize in um, across the services? Or maybe we find out through some of the National Defense Authorization Act stuff that's going on right now, maybe we redesign how the Department of Defense presents these forces and not everybody takes a, takes a, a equal share of responsibility. Maybe the Army does more than the Navy or the right. Air Force does more, the Marine Corps does more. We're still working through that. Um, Mark, how do you gauge progress as somebody who has uh, sort of a, a foot inside and a foot outside as you as you watch this, uh, what progress was made in 23? So first, I, I'd have to break this up in, in a different in a, in a different way that, that, that I did previously. I would I would uh, talk about how the dot mill is doing versus how the dot gov versus the private sector. And there are big differences. Look, the dot mill has because of a persistent NDAA with you know, has, uh, House Armed Services Committee, Senate Armed Services Committee, professional staff members who've been there years or decades, they are very efficient at cranking legislation to get DOD iterative change, the Department of Defense iterative change. So both Department of Defense and Cyber Command have 20 to 30 pieces of legislation every year. Uh, many of them slip to the committees by, you know, mem you know the department or the or the command right. to make things slightly more efficient, make things more effective. So the Department of Defense, as challenging as probably Chris thought it was on occasion, really is the gold standard for the for the United States, right? They they're in a good position. NSA is leading. I think NSA support for the defense industrial basis is really you know the top performing you know sector risk management agency. Um, so the DoD, with all its challenges, and it has challenges, is still in the best position. The .gov lags significantly. There's a lack of commitment and focus. There's a lack of leadership here. And by leadership, I mean CISA wants to be the leader, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. But most other federal, non-DOD federal agencies, and certainly DOD, you know, kind of give uh, um, you know the stiff arm to a lot of CISA support. Now, very very small and micro federal agencies are lashed to CISA, so they they do take the support. But the 15 or 20 bigger federal agencies try to run their own thing. And, and that gives us great risk because you really do need some consolidated leadership from CISA on this. So work really needs to be done there. If you ask me, that's one of the prime areas where the exec, where the White House, you know, the National Cyber Director and the National Security Council. And here I'm talking more about the resilience team, um, uh, vice the cybersecurity team. So the resilience team under Caitlin Durkovich and um, Elizabeth Sherwood Randall really needs to take a leadership role and empower CISA to be that federal leader so that the .gov can look a little bit more like the .mil. And I'll give you one good example in pay. It, cyber accepted service has been slow on the uptake in DOD, but it's starting to really get some speed now. And that is a better compensation and retention system for cyber professionals than the traditional pay bans. Um, that exists in the Department of Defense. It does not exist broadly in the .gov. It also exists in the intelligence community. They have a great system. <clears throat> so my point on this is fixing that kind of workforce management and compensation system is something that .gov really needs to tackle. Fixing CISA's leadership position, anchoring CISA's leadership position is something the executive branch needs to tackle. And then finally, how all of them work with the with the public sector you know, needs to improve. As I said, DOD is probably at the leading edge. Department of Energy is in a good position. And then all the, you know, a lot of the other performers of sector risk management agencies lag 
So kind of that's how I see the federal government's role here. So as much as the Department of Defense is, it can sometimes be the subject of our ire, it really is in the best position of anyone in government. Um, and and there are a lot of reasons for that, including you know having uh, the manpower and and, and resource and and more access uh, to resources and and having enough people to send them for training, which which the other other uh, agencies don't have. Chris, uh, we're getting a little bit short on time, and I've got two questions. I want to end with an AI question, but first uh, a threat uh, question. How you know we have a tendency of looking at China, Russia. Iran and North Korea in their separate silos, whereas over the past year and past two years, in fact, we've seen them working more closely together. The Iranians and North Koreans supplying weapons, the Chinese giving all kinds of other support uh, to to Russia, maybe perhaps just short of anything from a significant weaponry standpoint, but certainly technological support and, and the like. How is that cooperation and alliance. You know, we we heard uh, Admiral uh, Lung Aquilino ring an alarm on that uh, this week from from Tokyo about the closeness uh, of the Chinese-Russia relationship in North Korea and the Pacific. From, from your perspective, how has the cyber threat changed and what evidence do we have that these four are actually kind of colluding and working together? And what does that tell us about the way we need to be defending, right? Because we have a tendency of looking at each one of these guys in different buckets, and I wanted to get your sense how that needle has moved in cyberspace and how we're responding. You know, as, as, you know how how it's how it's driving the way that we defend ourselves uh, or the kind of offensive actions we take to protect ourselves. Right? I mean, how does how what what does that threat look like, and what is the and how is that shaping our the way we respond? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question because you know from the in the in the physical world, yes, we have seen partnering between let's say the Russians and the Chinese, uh, just from a, a relationship building standpoint, um, the ability to resource each other, uh, you know, with the Koreans or whoever's going on with it, whether it's being what's going on in in uh, uh, the Ukraine or you know the, the Levant and 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 Israel right now. Uh, I, I don't know if we've seen as much partnering from a cyber perspective. But what I do think you see is lessons learned from the battlefield that that they're uh, taking to heart and maybe integrating in their own in their own ways. You know, uh, when you look at the war in Ukraine or what happened in Israel, uh, yeah, there were cyber activities that happened in the beginning. They quickly get get glossed over, uh, with the exception of the communities that focus on those things, right? So if you're inside the cyber community, of course you you're looking at the cyber activities, but to the larger or to the to the to the layman who's just sort of looking at this from the outside looking in, you see things that go kinetically very very quickly. So it's easy to pivot resources to the kinetic things. And again, once again, as the cyber people, and I think Mark would kind of bark back me up on this. It's very very easy uh, to pivot resources to things that you can look at and count and touch and feel: missiles, ships, airplanes, tanks, bullets, guns. You know, it's very very easy to do those things. It's harder to push resources over into the cyber world, with the exception of the defense side. You know, through things like flank speed and zero trust, and you know, project and you know, Operation Thunderdome and and stuff like that. Yeah, that is going uh, very well. It, but you don't uh, see as many of those resources being pivoted over to the areas that I that that we've talked about all through this conversation. Um, it's speed and scale, particularly OT. Uh, ashore and afloat, and uh, the presentation of offensive cyber forces uh, to deliver similar effects. You just don't see as much of that moving as quickly. Uh, Mark, your sense on all of this? You know, I think we've always had this great line that, you know, we, uh, that 
we reserve the right to respond to a cyber incident with a you know with a wide range of capabilities you know kinetic kinetic uh, economic diplomatic law enforcement cyber but i do think it's kind of, it's more um that as the adversaries got more and more skilled across all you know all four all four threat countries and as the united states has developed more and more cyber capability i think it's you know it's probably more likely than not that we can respond effectively with a cyber attack against a with a cyber activity of our own against adversary cyber malicious activity so i'd like to see more of that i think we should be more aggressive i recognize there's a tool a tool compromise factor when you talk about doing um, offensive cyber operations or, you know, in a, you know, for a cost of position purpose. But I also think we develop good tools and, you know, we should be in a position where we're not fretting over a lack of tools to, to take action. Um, I will say that development of a better, one of the things that causes me, you've heard me on occasion talk about the need for cyber force. We usually talk about people, but I also tell you that the services acquisition efforts and building the infrastructure and then the tool development it has lagged, I think, what Cyber Command would like. And that's one of the many reasons that NSA and Cyber Command have not been separated. So, you know, to, to bring it back, to have a more capable cyber response tool set, we really need to be more successful in our acquisition. Kind of the one thing the Congress is doing is they're kind of setting Cyber Command up to do a lot of this. There's some risk in that. You know, you don't have the kind of civilian oversight when a combatant command is doing this. But I really would like to see the services be more effective in their acquisition and development of tools and infrastructure to enable the cyber warfighter. Um, we've uh, got a couple of minutes left, and I have to ask about uh, AI. It was probably one of the biggest stories of the year, uh, whether or not it was, you know, ChatGPT getting headlines, and then uh, the increasing focus by government, uh, not just in the United States, but our allies and partners through the uh, Bletchley Park uh, agreement to figure out ways to sort of curb uh, the p potentially dangerous nature of the technologies. Chris, what role did AI play in 2023, whether in terms of, you know, Im improving, you know, especially in terms of improving cyber uh, security uh, as a tool set, as many have said, right, it could have actually dramatic impacts uh, on capability. And uh, Mark, I've got a slightly different question for you, even if you want to take a bite of that apple. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so I, I think what it has mostly done, and, and this is, I'm going to take a little bit of a trying to be uh, tongue in cheek here, is it's, it's, it's created a new buzzword. Um, you know, particularly when you look at the kinds of capabilities we're going to acquire, uh, now everybody, whether it was zero trust capabilities a couple of years ago and everybody's tool or product or service focused on a zero trust. Now it's pivoting to AI, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, how we're going to leverage these capabilities to do things. So, um, it's the new shiny thing we're all chasing. Now the department of the Navy, uh, had did, made some real movements. We, we've had task force 59 for a long time that was looking at, you know, how we use autonomous vehicles. Uh, the secretary just six months -ish ago created the disruptive capabilities office to be, you know, directed it to be stood up within the within the Navy to look at these things uh, a little more closely. So you have AI, how we're going to use them to do things like autonomous systems, and then you have AI of how we're going to use it to do cyber uh, warfare or cybersecurity. Um, I think the autonomous systems things is a, probably a little bit more mature than it is in the cybersecurity, cyber warfare world. Um, we are looking at those capabilities, but I'm afraid that the AI thing has just, to this year particularly, uh, just become another buzzword um, of things that we're trying to go off and go chase. 
Um, and, and, and how do we mature around that? I think you're going to see the next 24 months probably be a lot more interesting than the last 24 months um, as people really begin to pivot dollars towards this uh, and roll them into you know, either existing capabilities or new capabilities. Mark, uh, your sense uh, on this, and uh, lastly, what progress we're making on quantum, right? That's another cap uh, capability that's potentially uh, completely game-changing. Uh, we've been talking about it for years, but in quantum, right, every five years, uh, <laughs> we say quantum is going to happen within five years. It doesn't happen every within five years, but we are getting close. Walk us through on, on both of those before we wrap. So thanks. Yeah, yeah. On first, I say on artificial intelligence. Um, the the most concerning thing is probably applies to quantum well. It, the most concerning thing I hear sometimes people go, well, you know, do I need to make my current investments in cybersecurity if we're just going to be moving to a whole new threat environment? I'm like, no, hold on. Cybersecurity is still going to be critical. In fact, artificial intelligence will provide both. It will provide pose challenges to your cybersecurity, but also provide a lot of opportunity. I think what this really, the two areas that I think AI is going to be very interesting in in cybersecurity. One is, you know, the, the and, and the, Chris kind of averted this, it's anomalous activity detection and the ability of automated systems to rapidly deduce that someone has penetrated you. We should all assume some level of penetration and therefore your ability to detect inappropriate, unapproved, unexpected actions is critical. And I think AI could, could really help with that. Um, and the second part is recovery. We've always kind of like, you know, the recovery after a significant attack, you know, pat, you know, putting back your system the way it used to be um, is a painful, human intensive process. Um, and I think AI can really help with that recovery. You know, constantly taking snapshots of your systems, you know, seconds or microseconds before the cyber malicious activity. So the system knows how to restore itself to the last time it was healthy rapidly. I think I think AI could be a big player in the recovery. And I think recovery is going to be a big part of how we look at cybersecurity going forward. You know, it's it's a, going to be that, that big element of resilience. When I look at quantum, what I would tell you, again, this isn't going to impact us today or tomorrow, although there have been some breakthroughs just in the last, you know, few uh, weeks or months at, at IBM and others. Um, the, uh, you know, qu quantum is telling us to hurry up on, on making sure that we are getting our critical systems into quantum resilient uh, encrypt, you know, encryption, and, and and that's a big that's a big bill, and it's one that we've kind of deferred. You know, I think we really did to NSA's credit. They thought about it fifteen years ago, uh, began to ask for budgets for it. Congress gave them the money, but I think many times, ten, twelve, eight, six years ago. The, the budget that should have helped with, with quantum and, and uh, resilient encryption development and, and protection was that re repurposed back into legacy encryption issues. So now we're kind of at the point where we really have to spend real money, you know, uh, each year to make ourselves more secure in the future and that the secrets that we hold now that would still be of value a decade from now are truly protected from future snooping. Um, so, uh, you know, we got work to do in both, but look, I, I see great opportunity in both and, uh, and I see cybersecurity, uh, as still being a critical issue five years from now, 10 years from now and 20 years from now. Uh, uh Chris, uh, if you've uh, got a 15 second ad, you want to make to that about the progress the department is making, right? Given that this technology uh, is bearing down, uh, on us before we part, go ahead. 
Yeah. And the 15 seconds would be, I'll just reiterate what I said before. I, I think that you have seen investments begin to move and the creation of organizations designed to study for these things. So the D Department of Defense is, is positioning itself to be able to acquire, adopt, embrace, uh, integrate these capabilities into the joint force moving forward. So that is encouraging. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope uh, you and yours have uh, great holidays uh, and a very happy new year and looking forward to working together again in 2024. Thanks so very much. And Chris, congratulations again on your retirement uh, and bravo Zulu. Thank you, Vago. Hey, thank you, Vago.